Great, thank you. Please take your seats and uh, have your Bibles open if you're able to, to that passage, Luke 9, 21 to 27. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. I don't know um, if you've ever thought about this, but I wonder what your motto for life might be if you had to design one. Uh, my side of the family, the, the all side of the family, my parents and my brothers and sisters and, and all their spouses, we have a WhatsApp group, as is quite normal for families nowadays, and my sister found the all family crest the other day and placed it um, at the top of our, our WhatsApp group chat as, as, as the picture. And uh, out of interest, I looked up the Orr family motto that goes with that uh, crest, and this is what it is. Bonis omnia bono, which means, for those of you who are good at Latin, uh, David King isn't here, he'd be able to do this, um, all things are good to the good. Now, I have no earthly idea <laughs> what that actually means. Not a clue. It, it, it sounds very profound, but I, I can imagine it's very vacuous and banal. Does it mean, for example, those who are good deserve or are likely to get good things? That sounds quite uh, secular to me. I suppose a bit like positive karma, um, salvation by works um, in Christian parlance, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, or I wonder whether it meant that those who are good will only do the things that are good. That, that's a nice thought. I suppose that's a bit more right-sounding in some respects, but, but it just isn't true. Well, how about, I was thinking, it could mean that for, for the good, for those who are good, they, they see the good in everything. So even in the bad stuff and, or in the bad people, they, they, they see what is good, and so their lives are full of awe and wonder and, uh, as they see the best in everything, and life is, is more fulfilling as a consequence. Who knows? Uh, but uh, it is interesting that whatever it means, the Orr family obviously see themselves as very good people. And so I'm very glad to be one, and I'm sure you're all very honoured to know one. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But not for those who really believe in these things. A motto is an aspirational tagline, a philosophy, if you like, to live by. But it isn't just something of yesteryear that was placed on, on family crests. Organisations around the world use them every day, don't they? Nike, one of the biggest companies in the world, that's motto is, as we know, just do it. The philosophy behind that is very simple. Whatever you can do, whatever you set your mind to, you can achieve it. Nike will help you achieve all of those things for you. Just go for it. Do it. You've got nothing to lose. How about L'Oreal? Because you're worth it. The philosophy behind that is simple. You deserve this. You're worth this product. It'll make you feel worthy. This is what we provide for you. Everything you deserve, worth, more value to your life. But how about the, the motto to trump all mottos? The, the, the famous... The most famous motto in the world used by schools and universities and clubs and families throughout the ages since Horace of Rome penned them, carpe diem, seize the day. And there are not many uh, lines in Latin poetry which have had a more lasting impact in the way the West, at least, I feel, approach life. In order to be most fulfilled in life, says Horace, you must seize the day, carpe diem, grab what is in front of you. And is that not exactly the way that so many around us in our society approach the whole of life? 
living for the pleasure or the present rather than thinking too much about living for the future. The assumption is, of course, that that what is around us is literally all there is. Bertrand Russell used to say that uh, all we are as humans is a glob of carbon floating from one meaningless existence to another. And carpe diem makes perfect sense in a world where that is true. For if it is, then we need to do everything we can in this short life of ours to grab all the worldly pleasure now and get what we can because we're going to die soon, there's not much time left, and I need to make my life count as much as it can. That is a worldview that transcends class and generation. From the most deprived areas in Scotland to our very own uh, community here in Collington, every single person in the West, at least, has the basic worldview that what we see is all there is, and we don't have much time before it runs out on us. And so we need to seize it now. And I would imagine, if we're honest, that we would be able to, to detect significant elements of that in the way that we think in our hearts as Christians, as we daily grab for earthly pleasure and fleeting treasures rather than what Christ offers. All these mottos, if you notice, as we approach our passage today, in the light of where we are now in Luke's gospel, as we sink further into Jesus' teaching on discipleship over these verses and over these weeks, all of these earthly mottos stand in direct opposition. They are an antithesis to authentic Christian discipleship and living. For Jesus' motto for fulfillment and right living is found in verse 23 of our passage this morning. If anyone would come after me, that is, whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Not carpe diem, more carpe crucis. Seize the cross, says Jesus, and follow me. And what I want to stress as we start this element of Jesus' teaching, that Jesus doesn't set this life motto before us to stand against pleasure and happiness and human fulfillment in our lives. And it might be tempting to think that. It's just that he understands more than anyone else where true pleasure and human fulfillment and satisfaction is actually found. He knows it is not found in ignoring the future and running away from Jesus, but it is in fact found in running towards the future and holding on to Jesus. The uh, first question in the Shorter Catechism, as many of you know, is what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the height of human pleasure and fulfillment and purpose and flourishing for humankind? The answer is not that you need to seize the day, rather that you need to seize Jesus to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the life for which you are made, for a total enjoyment only found in God. That is the life in which we flourish. That is the life in which we live and move and have our being. And so today, Jesus is going to summon each one of us to embrace exactly that kind of fulfilling life. 
And as we look at this, I want to do so by looking at two words in this passage this morning, which provide our two points for us. And the first word is about what Jesus came to do, his mission, how he was to achieve that, and that is his suffering. And the second word is what we are asked to do by way of our summons. So first, Jesus' suffering. This is found in verse 20 to to 22. Then he said to them, "Uh, but who do you say that I am? That is what he's been saying. I'm just going to read this bit beforehand. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And then Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It might seem strange, mightn't it, that Jesus does this here after Peter's moment of of astonishing realisation. He hasn't got much right in Luke so far as Peter, but this is something that he has absolutely nailed on the head. Jesus is God's king. That's what he sort of blurts out. The promised one from the Old Testament, the ruler of all, the Christ. And we might be thinking that, having finally understood that, Jesus wants that to be broadcast to everyone. After all, bringing people into that realisation that Peter gets to is the sole purpose, really, his main priority for being on earth. He is to talk about himself and to get people to answer correctly the question that we looked at last week, who do you say that I am? And yet, no, no sooner does Peter get there when Jesus not only doesn't tell him to repeat it, but notice he strictly charges and commands him not to tell anyone. It's almost a, don't you dare tell anyone about this yet. Well, why does he do that? Well, the reason is that, and we're going to see this over the course of the next few weeks, that although the disciples have worked out who Jesus is, that he is God's king, they haven't worked out exactly what kind of king Jesus is going to be. And so he wants to instruct his disciples further before they go around giving people wrong expectations. It's partly why he's starting this discipleship program. They haven't really understood who he is yet. It's like, lesson one, you're the Christ of God. Brilliant. There's going to be ten more lessons as to what that actually means. It seems that what we're going to read later in this chapter, that they have in their heads that Jesus is going to be a political ruler, a a revolutionary, a William Wallace kind of figure, fighting for freedom, who would immediately bring about their release from their physical oppressors and enemies, the Roman Empire. And it is explicitly to counteract that misunderstanding of what it means for Jesus to be the king, that he says, verse 22, let me start you off on what this actually looks like, says Jesus. This, this Christ that you partially recognize, well, he must come and he must suffer. The son of man, says Jesus, must suffer, and he must suffer many things. Not not that he he will suffer, but that he must, as in he he has to. That's uh, not a word of begrudging acceptance here by Jesus, is it? Where Jesus sort of says to his father, as it were, oh, okay, if I must, I will. If if that's what I need to be doing, fine. If, If I need to be king, and if I want to be king, I understand that I need to sort of fulfill this obstacle course of suffering, like some sort of philosophical and... And, and, and physical character-building exercise that's going to teach me a lot about myself. It's going to be very illuminating. It's going to make me a better king as a consequence as I sort of identify with, 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 with the people who are under me. That, that, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. 
This isn't the, the suffering of begrudging acceptance. It is the suffering of divine compulsion. Earlier on in Luke's Gospel, if you remember, uh, th- th- there's a crowd preventing him from leaving their town, and Jesus turns to them and he uses the same word. He says, but I must go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, for that is why I've come. I've got to do it. It's everything I need to be doing. He was using the same word to express the same urgency and idea. This is the will of my Father in heaven. It's a non-negotiable. This is, this is the commission that God has given me. I must do it. And this is the first time Jesus in the Gospels says with such clarity that I have to, I must suffer. And particularly, I must suffer and die. That is what God has for me. I must do it. It's, it's what I do that the Christ suffers and he dies. It's not an optional extra. And it's not an unavoidable consequence of the path of obedience. It is the very center of what God has to do on earth if we have any hope of being saved by him. And being saved by him, this great salvation, if you remember, that Jesus offers is everything that we've been learning about in the chapters leading up to this passage in chapter 7 and 8, if you remember, the great salvation of the Christ, the the glorious salvation that he came to proclaim. He says, I've come to proclaim the good news to to the spiritually poor, freedom to the spiritually captive, recovery of sight to the spiritually blind, to to usher in, if you remember, the, the the year of the Lord's favor. I've come to save people very seriously from disease, death, and disorder in the world, from the devil himself, and most of all, from, from your sinful, wretched hearts. And now for the first time, Jesus gathers his disciples around him, and he says, how is this going to be accomplished? Not through armed rebellion, but through incredible suffering. I must suffer, and I must die. I uh, often think that people think that the cross happened because events got out of hand. I actually had that given to me as a, in a conversation once a number of years ago. Like it, it just went totally out of control and Jesus lost the plot. God didn't have a handle on it and it went beyond anyone had ever expected. It's sort of a religion by accident. God lost control. Jesus got himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was a victim of, of political manoeuvring and circumstance, as everyone is at the end of the day. And and the cross marked the unravelling of the divine plan. There's a theologian who actually says that. The cross is the death knell of what God had in store for humanity. That that is absolute rubbish. The cross is, in fact, the very fulfilment of his plan. God the Father didn't just know his son would suffer in advance. He planned that his son would suffer in advance. And Jesus willingly and freely chooses to walk that road in obedience to his Father. The point is strengthened all the way through this verse, isn't it? So if you go through the whole passage, in fact, if you read the NIV, it has must four times. All four verbs are governed by the same word. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Incidentally, can you see how comprehensive this is? The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He's not sort of just giving an overview. He's really sort of nailing down into the detail uh, that that those three groups um, sort of made up of the the whole of the Sanhedrin, the the whole of the ruling body 
of Judaism. Jesus isn't going to die, he says, uh, because of a personality clash with an individual leader or because a dictator sort of has a fit of pique at the wrong moment. He'll die, says Jesus, because the leaders of the whole of the Jewish nation will rally against him. That that's the way it must be, says Jesus. Again, I, I said this in, uh, last week in response to a question that one of you had as we were walking. Why doesn't Jesus make himself clear all the time? Well, here in Luke, he makes himself incredibly clear. He goes into such detail. He's more clear about everything that must happen to him here than at any other point in the gospel. I've got to suffer. I must suffer. But not just suffer, but I've got to die. And I've not just got to suffer and die, but I've also got to suffer very specifically at the hands of very specific people. Let me name them for you, the, the scribes, the chief priests, the, the, the teachers of the law. It is they who are going to kill me. And the Son of Man isn't just going to suffer and die at the hands of those specific men, but three days later I'm going to rise again. It, it, it's clear as crystal. There's no equivocation. Everything is detailed to the day. These are all things I must do. This is planned. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I must be raised to broadcast and declare my kingly rule and the victory that I have over sin and death. It has to happen this way. That is what being the Christ means. Being the Christ means that Christ has to achieve these things. He has to achieve this suffering. Same point comes to Jesus again, doesn't it? And we will get there at some point in Luke. The Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. If there is any other way, if there is any other way that this salvation can be achieved, then I really want to hear it now, says Jesus. If there is any way that I don't have to go through with this, going to the cross and taking your wrath, tell me now. But there was no other way. Jesus knows that. Not my will, says Jesus, but yours be done. It must happen. Here's a question for you. If you were God, what would you do? Or what would be the first thing that, that you would do? I used to play this game as a kid with uh, myself. And uh, I would think on the question, <laughs> yeah, I would think on the question, what if I were to do if I were God? What would the, the first thing I'd do? I wonder what you would come up with in this thought experiment. Would you remove war or, or murder or cruelty, perhaps? You'd get rid of poverty or disease. Or possibly, if we're honest, we'd want to get to the more trivial stuff quicker uh, than we might um, um, sort of say that we would. Would we never want to fail another exam? These are the things that I used to come up with. If I was God, I'd never fail tomorrow's exam. Or, or I would only have the best meals in the evening or the best friends around me all the time. It suddenly became very quickly a very personal thing for me. What is it I would do to make my life better? I wonder what we might say to that question. What would you do if you were God? Here's what no one will say. Oh, if I were God, I would allow myself to be rejected and killed. That's a strange thing to say, wouldn't it? And that points to the surprise in verse 22, Jesus telling the disciples not to tell us about anyone. It, it sort of helps contrast verse 22 with, with the power that we see Jesus demonstrating in the previous chapter that we finished a few months ago. 
where Jesus has power over the sea and the wind, chronic disease, horrific evil, even death itself, they all crumble before him. And it is this man with his power and authority who announces that he is determined to go and die. And you think, surely that's not what God would do. Well, we've seen all the incredible power. Why would he go and die? You have to think what astonishing humility. What amazing love that he should be so committed to make it possible for people like you and me to be saved from a broken world and saved from our sinful hearts that he would give his life to shame, suffering and execution so that we might live. And yet that is what it did. That's what he did. That's why he warns the disciples not to say anything. That, that, that's outrageous. He did it for me and he did it for you. He did it for all of you who will come to him and ask for his forgiveness and follow him and trust in him. This is for you. He died for you. It really does take your breath away. It it should do. And so can you see, once we have Christ, the cross-bearer in our minds at this point, can you see that when he now moves on to asking me to take up my cross and follow him, he hasn't asked anything of us that he hasn't freely given and thought through and lived through and carried for himself, for us. And that brings us to, to point two, our last point, the summons to follow. And here we think about the way, the, the, the what and the why of discipleship in the light of this suffering Christ, the King of God, the cross-bearer. How does knowing that Jesus is going to suffer and did suffer for us affect us and inform us as to how we live for and follow him? First, the what. What does following Jesus look like in the light of this suffering Christ? This is what we see in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's the most general possible statement, isn't it? It's not, for those of you who are really going to be zealous for me, what I suggest is that you pick up your cross and you follow me daily, because that's going to get you onto a higher plane of understanding as to what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Well, for those of you who are really wanting to get me theologically and and delve down into what's really happening in the meat of of, of the Bible, in in active, real discipleship, why don't you take up your cross and, and, and you guys follow me that way? No, the, the word is anyone. If anyone who should come after me or, or whoever comes after me, he, he uses that word because he's describing every single person, every single bog standard, normal, everyday, day in, day out, disciple of the Lord Jesus. This is what you are to live and look like. It, it's not that we, we live like this because we earn Christ's salvation either. That's very important. Not at all. But we live like this because we can live like this as Jesus, as those who in me have been freely given this salvation by no personal merit, no goodness of your own, take up your cross, you, you normal, bog-standard believer of the Lord Jesus. Take up your cross because you can, because of the grace that I have given you. You can live like this, and so we do. We now heed his call to discipleship. We obey him. And in the essence of it all, if you remember from last week, is that we are not just following anyone, we are following him, Jesus, the one whose identity is supremely important to us as we consider what we are giving up for this person, the God-man who died for you. 
It sounds like an obvious point to make, but it's easy to lose sight of Jesus right at the centre of our hearts, can it? Every day, fleetingly, every single moment of the day. We can slip into thinking of our Christian life in terms of the jobs that we do for church, perhaps, or the jobs that we do for Jesus, those of us in Christian ministry, rather than being about following Jesus. You can slip into, especially in, in, in our sort of circles of church life, we can slip into following our favourite preacher or our favourite Christian author or listening to that, that favourite podcast. Maybe there's a role model that you've had in life. Maybe it's even your spouse. You, you sort of follow those things more than you follow Jesus. They're not bad things at all. We recommend all those kind of things. But am I following them rather than following the Jesus of the Bible? Am I I giving up all kinds of stuff for them, but I'm not giving up the same kinds of stuff for Jesus? Or we can develop such a strong allegiance to a Christian organisation or a particular way of doing things that very subtly can take precedence over Jesus himself. Here Jesus calls us to a radical self-forgetfulness where everything else, in effect, falls out of our line of sight and there's nothing else left in our eye line but, but Jesus and Jesus alone. And, and that's what denying oneself means, isn't it? It's primarily about sorting out my allegiance. The other way deny can be translated is, is to, to, to disown something. That's the same word used later in the Gospels with, with, with Peter disowning Jesus. He says, oh, I don't know the man. I, I deny him. I have no allegiance to him in any way. He's nothing to me. I don't belong to him. That's what Peter is saying. And so to deny myself is to say that I don't belong to myself anymore. That, that, that's an enormous thing to say in this day and age, isn't it? We were so wrapped up in self-identifiers and self-identification and, and be who you are, be true to yourself. I don't have that right as a Christian. I have no allegiance to myself. I can't hold anything to myself or against myself or for myself. I have no, my, my, my own independent way of life is not lived without Jesus as a part of all of that. I live for him now. I belong to him. And so my agenda is not about my desires and my will and my glory. They are about his desires and his will and his glory. I disown myself for the sake of Jesus. My allegiance isn't me anymore. And that is so very difficult. Because we are so hardwired for ourselves. This is a radical way of living but it is a living that has been won for us because Jesus knows we can't do this on our own. That is why he has to suffer and die, to get us there. It's like going in convoy. You lead Jesus and I'll follow. I can't do this on my own. I don't know the way. Taking up your cross is a very similar idea. The the, the only people in the first century who took up their crosses were those who are actually condemned criminals walking to their death. So this is a very striking image of our daily life, isn't it? For, for plenty of the disciples of Jesus, for nearly all of them, and for many of our brothers and sisters around the globe, that is a very literal reality, isn't it? Following Jesus, and you're going to go to your deaths because of me. Take up your cross. 
but it is for us in a very real way. Not that we won't be called to do that. We might be called to give up our lives for Jesus, even in our country. But it's a very real way in terms of our independence. The thing that we hold most dear in the West, my independence for Jesus literally has to die. And my life is lived totally for him now. And the unique thing about Luke is the word daily here. To do all of this on a daily basis. Luke really twists in the knife. It's very uncomfortable. Discipleship isn't an occasional thing, but, but a constant thing. He's, he's a defining center to my being. It's not a passive thing either. It's an active thing every day. Such as I, I get clothed daily. That, that is what I do as I, as I pick up my cross as I leave the house, if you like. And many people here, I'm sure, could testify that it has been in seasons of life in which we have maintained a a good vigilance about self-denial and loving others better than ourselves, the Sermon on the Mount stuff, and and where we are cross-bearers, where we have been most fruitful for Jesus and most fruitful in life, and conversely, the opposite being true. When we have not been actively doing this in any way, that's when the weeds of sin and the self have grown and taken over. You see, Jesus is saying here, this will be the issue at the heart of every personal battle with sin. Self-pity, lack of contentment, competitive, greed, pride, anger, the private sordid sins, the subtle sins, the sins that no one knows about. When was the last time you or I decisively picked up our cross and put sin to death in that way? Jesus says today, take up your cross daily and follow me. Don't give up on the daily cross bearing. Don't allow small sins to grow into enormous ones until you're living with astonishing consequences. Just don't do that. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. And he wants us to say, yes, Jesus, I will. I don't know where it's going to lead. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I do know that you're the good shepherd. And so where you go, I will follow. And I'm going to get lost at points. But you're going to find me, I'm going to follow. That is the what of being a disciple. What discipleship looks like. But now the why. Why does discipleship look like this? Why was it designed this way? Because see, Jesus seems to anticipate that question in these verses. He anticipates that some of us will listen to this and go, Goodness me, that seems incredibly difficult. Why even bother? Well, why bother indeed, says Jesus. Jesus gives us three reasons for why it really does make a lot of sense to do what he says. And as he walks to his death, to follow him down that road. Reason one, I follow him because if I keep my life, I will lose it. That's verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's quite simple, isn't it? I might be so attached to my independent life, to the values and acceptance of the world around me, that I instinctively want to try and keep hold of this life of self. And Jesus says, well, you can try and do that, but you're going to lose it anyway. And he's talking, of course, about the reality and, and that day when we stand before the judgment seat of Jesus and he's going to judge us and He says, you're going to lose it anyway if you've not given your life over to me freely now. You won't receive instead this gift of eternal life. That's just just a spiritual and physical reality, says Jesus. The missionary Jim Elliot 
famously wrote in his diary, didn't he? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Days before he went to his death for preaching the gospel. Do we as Christians in this church really believe that to be true? That we have a future to gain and a hell to spurn and that this life is a fleeting moment in a greater reality that is eternity with Jesus or eternity without him? Do we believe that that is true? And is it worth giving up everything for? Secondly, however, the reason that this way of living and following Jesus makes sense is, reason two, I follow him because if I gain the world, it seems I lose it. Verse 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's not meant to be a hard question. It's very easy. Jesus says it's, it's no good at all. What might we think uh, it means for someone to gain the world? What, what do we think of someone who gains the whole world? Uh, imagine being on your hospital bed at the end of your long days. You've had time to think through your life. And what would make you say, yes, I think I've gained the whole world? Maybe you would say that because you've amassed enough wealth in life, you've been able to do anything you wanted at any time with very little restrictions. You were able to buy the things that you want with little fuss or bother. You might even be able to sort of ride out a global pandemic relatively easy and, and not be touched too badly. You've been able to squirrel a lot of money away for your children, maybe your grandchildren. They're going to be really comfortable. And that thought genuinely makes you feel comfortable as you lie there on your bed. You've been given a lot of way to charity even... And you've genuinely helped a lot of people. And you lie there thinking, saying, yeah, I, I really think I've gained, I've gained the whole world. Or it might not be money at all in any way, even close. Maybe it would be simply a, just a sense of fulfillment. You've lived a life where you've enjoyed unfailing health for decades. You, your family is a picture of, of happiness and joy. You've enjoyed a great reputation. You, you're known you're really, not just for being good at something, for, for, but for being the good guy, the, the, the good girl, the, the, the sound one, the solid one. And Jesus says, well, imagine you've done that. You, you, you lie there going, yeah, I've gained the whole world. No earthly regret. There's nothing that you don't see in your sights that you haven't achieved, nothing in your bucket list that you haven't done. And then picture yourself standing before Jesus, and he asks the questions, well, did, did you know me? Did you follow me? And you ask yourself in that moment, goodness, was that life worth it? Well, Jesus says, of course it isn't. Come and follow me. And reason three Jesus gives. I follow him because if I am ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of me. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Daryl Bock, a commentator on Luke, says that daily cross-bearing involves the public confession of Jesus and the acceptance of his teaching's authority. Anything less than that is to be ashamed of Jesus and leaves him to being ashamed of me. It's quite a startling image. It's a terrifying image, in fact, the Son of Man standing there in all his radiant glory. We're going to see a little bit of that in the Transfiguration next week. And someone runs up to him, arms outstretched, expecting a warm welcome, and he says, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm ashamed of you. I don't know you. No one in their right minds would want that to happen. So Jesus says, come and follow me. And, and that is the gospel we need to be preaching. This, this is a spiritual reality. 
And Jesus is not just chucking out threats. He's really not. He's wanting to persuade us of the real sense of life of discipleship. He wants us to remember that however um, um, the, the, the suffering of following him, and it is at real cost, that the cost of not following him is so much greater and a lot longer lasting. The delayed Olympics, uh, the 2020 Olympics, are not far from starting in a few months' time. And as of today, I, I realise this could change in any moment. It still looks like it, it actually might be called off. But, but assuming it goes ahead, all the world's athletes will descend on Tokyo and we'll see sporting prowess like no other. The, 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 and, and our papers and our TV screens are, over those weeks, going to be filled with broadly only two reactions every single day. The utter joy and delirium and ecstasy and, and fulfillment and, and celebration of the winner. Four to five years of work and sacrifice and, and, and pain all worth it. Basking in the utter glory and adulations of millions around the world, draped in flags, littered with confetti and adorned with medals. Contrasted deeply with the utter dejection, heartbreak, failure, disappointment, shattered dreams of the loser. Four to five years of work done away with. Coaches consoling athletes. Athletes unable to look at their coaching team in the eye. Whole, whole teams sort of standing dejectedly, not looking at each other, watching the medal ceremonies, thinking what went wrong, asking the if-onlys, the what-ifs. And you want to ask yourself in that moment, well, which team would I rather be on? And the Bible presents us with this very picture. Here is Jesus. He is the Christ of God. He is God's Messiah. He will reign forever in his glory, the glory that we will see next week as we ascend the mountain and experience Christ transfigured. There is a real cost to following him. But in eternity, you bask in and enjoy forever the reflected glory of your champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course we want to be on his team. The great lie of the devil is found in Carpe Diem that the only way to enjoy life and to flourish is to seize the day. The great summons of Jesus is carpe crucis. Seize the cross and follow him on the road to Jerusalem and to the cross, knowing that suffering is temporary and glory is eternal. And it all comes down, says Jesus, as we go through these weeks in Luke, of who you trust. Who do you trust to take charge of your life? Horace? the spin doctor of the Roman Empire or Jesus who loved you enough to die for you what is our motto to be as individuals of this church family carpe diem or carpe crucis and as we come to eat the bread and the wine how very very right and appropriate it is that we remember exactly how it is that Jesus lived for us and how exactly we should be living and dying for him let me pray as we, as we close. Father, we'll thank you and praise you for your very, very clear words to us this morning. Father, we want to repent individually and corporately, as we will do so later before we approach your table, of the many, many times, every single day, where we fail to live like this, where we see the fleeting pleasures and treasures of our earthly life around us and we really go hunting for them. Father God, thank you 
that, that we are covered by your incredible grace. Thank you that you know that this is a difficult thing to ask of us. And so thank you, Heavenly Father, that you win this life for us. You get us to your glory. You get us home because of your grace and because you suffered and died for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the cross that you bore on our behalf. We pray very, very much that us being saved in Christ would choose to every day obey you and pick up our cross and follow you. Lord, for those of us who have let sin slide for such a long time, there is no time like the present. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come to you in repentance and faith, have our sin done away with, and take up our cross again and follow you. Father, help us, we pray. Help us as we go through these difficult but wonderful verses in in Luke over these few weeks and months. Lord, may we be won over and, and more infatuated with the Lord Jesus Christ who does everything to get us right with him. We pray these things in your strong name. Amen.